Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... I knew that people were getting more and more pushback in the Republican Party for a view that could be described as, like, just completely pro-market or having, you know, a magical faith in markets. Carl Smith on the baffling future of conservative economics. If you could go back a decade or two, you the listener, I mean, and somebody asked you, what is the conservative approach to the economy? You might say, well, at least rhetorically, it's an approach that favors lower taxes, deregulation, cutting government spending. It's also free trade, pro-free trade. And again, at least rhetorically, it's in favor of cutting the budget deficit. Now, in reality, what conservatives have actually done in recent decades when they've been in power, I mean, when Republicans have been in power, is a little bit different. But that overall philosophical approach was basically it. That's what conservative economics was understood to be. Less government, low taxes, pro-trade, and, you know, kind of a cozy relationship with the corporate world and so on. But all that seems to have changed in roughly the last half decade. There's been this lingering and visible tension between that old school free markety conservatism and a different approach that's now largely associated with Donald Trump. They're not exclusively associated with him and which is sometimes referred to as populist. And I'm not exactly sure if that's the right word. People tend to mean different things when they refer to populism. But for today's chat, we'll use it. And that tension has made it really hard to answer what should be a simple question. What is conservative economics now? And if or when Republicans are in power again, what policies are they going to pursue? And what will conservative pundits and policymakers and economists advise them to do? I don't really know anymore. I have no idea. So I have invited Carl Smith, an economist and a columnist at Bloomberg, onto the show today. And I invited Carl both because he's a really smart and clever and idiosyncratic thinker and also because he himself has walked through conservative economic circles. For example, he argued in favor of the Tax Cut and Jobs Act, which was the big tax bill that Trump and congressional Republicans passed in 2017. He's also the former vice president for federal policy at the Tax Foundation, a right of center think tank. He's written pieces for National Review, a conservative publication and so on. Also, He's just very fun to talk to. Before we start, two quick points. First, this episode is a bit different from other ones in that the conversation is less precise. It's more searching. Carl and I are not presenting definitive conclusions or, you know, the analysis from someone's research or anything like that. Carl and I are just talking through some ideas. And I make that point because emotions can run kind of hot, you know, when talking about politics. So I'm just giving you the heads up. Second, you might be wondering if I'm planning to do a show about the left or left of center or the progressive approach to economics. For now, the answer is no, but not because I think its own future is unimportant. Of course, it's important. It's mainly just because I am less confused by what's happening on the left, where I think the various competing factions are just more clearly defined. But if you think I should change my mind and do such a show, go ahead and get in touch and let me know. And with all that said, let's get to the chat with Carl Smith. Here it is. Carl Smith, welcome to the New Bazaar. Yeah, thanks. Glad to be here. 
So, Carl, I, I think a fun place to start this chat is with a story that you told me recently about what happened a few years ago when you went in for an interview at the Trump administration's Department of Labor and specifically what the people interviewing you were worried about when you spoke with them. So why don't we start there? What happened in that interview? Yeah, so in 2018, I had uh, left the Niskanen Center suddenly. I needed a job. and A think I, tank. A think tank. Where I, left a, I left a think tank where I worked called the Niskanen Center. It's probably a moderate, you know, moderately right of center think tank, notably anti-Trump. But I had a lot of friends who were worried about me, some of them with connections in the Trump administration. And so they got me an interview to be an advisor to to the uh, secretary of labor. So I, I go in for the interview. There are a few questions about my background, but almost the entire interview is essentially a search as to whether or not I am what I'd call a, a neoliberal plant. And I think that's actually a phrase they used during the interview. And what they meant was, was I someone who was coming from the old school of conservative thinking where markets are always good, business is always good, lower taxes and lower regulation is always good? Or was I more sympathetic to a Trumpist populist view that in their mind would have the Labor Department acting on behalf of workers to expand, you know, workers' rights to, I think at the time they were looking to like uh, expand the number of people who could get overtime. Um, they were looking to like expand some other like wage-related regulations. And so they were, they were essentially worried that I might come in with these sort of like old conservative views. And they had told me that like in the White House especially, so I was interviewing at the Labor Department, but, you know, at the White House, they were simply inundated with neoliberal plants who were undermining the Trump administration's objectives, and they wanted to make sure that didn't happen at labor. So that that was, I guess, you know, the crux of the interview. They asked me question after question about immigration, about wages, about trade, about profits, about the financial sector, about financialization, all of these things to see that if I could give, you know, sort of the populist answer. And, and you know, I, I tried to like swim between, you know, because I, I kind of I kind of would have been a neoliberal plant. So I, try, I, I, tried <laughs> I was to just going to say, being familiar with your work in the past, like you do have some pretty pro-market views. Absolutely. Yeah. So I tried to swim between that. I mean, I wasn't really prepared for this at all. I mean, like I said, I mean, it was, it was friends who, uh, who set up the interview for me. I tried to swim between and give, you know, answers I thought they would be okay with. I think either, you know, I didn't do a good enough job or they simply searched me on the internet afterwards because I, I heard nothing from them. No callback, no, not even like, thank you, but no, thank you. They just cut off communication, at, you know, after the interview. So I think they, they discovered at least, you know, who they're talking to. Before the Trump administration kind of introduced this tension between that populist thinking and the old school free markety approach to conservative economics, would you have defined yourself as a conservative economist or at least a, an economist with a lot of conservative views? Uh, yeah. I mean, so I thought that, you know, I was more sort of a, you know, free thinking conservative economist before sort of the Trump administration. The probably the most heterodox from conservative thinking position I would take is that I was more OK with sort of like explicitly. I don't know if your listeners will know if I say Keynesian economics, but the idea that especially during depressions or recessions, the government or the Federal Reserve can get the economy back on track by stimulating spending, by just by stimulating more people buying stuff. And in very traditional conservative economics, this is sort of a frowned upon idea. But among conservative academics, it's not really. So Greg Mankiw is a famous like New Keynesian scholar. He was also CA for the Bush administration. 
Ben Bernanke was appointed by Bush to be Federal Reserve Chair, and Bernanke is a pro-stimulus, Keynesian thinking kind of guy. So among like PhD economists, that's not really out of the mainstream, but it's it was a little bit out of the mainstream for like Washington. And, and for conservative pundits, I think, right. and other parts of like the conservative intelligentsia, I think that kind of policy generally is frowned upon, right? Yes, generally frowned upon. I mean, um, but you were in favor of it. Yeah. I was in favor of it. It's particularly frowned upon when Republicans are out of office too. I think the people who are against it are allowed to be a little bit louder uh, when that's the case. Okay, but otherwise, you're you would say that you had some some views that were conservative in terms of you know the role of the market versus the role of the government in in terms of some parts of the economy, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. Okay, and so you go in for this interview, and you're sort of. <laughs> surprised that they're asking all these questions to try to suss out exactly what your views are. And I just thought this was a really interesting anecdote because it shows in a small little microcosm this broader tension that seems to have arisen, you know, about five years ago. And I'm sure there were there were some pockets of conservative economics where it existed already, of course, but it became more explicit during the Trump years where you had both as you described it, the neoliberal free market types, the old school conservative types, and the newer sort of populist types. And I want to put this into a kind of historical context. So, you know, how far back would you say the sort of more free markety, conservative, really low taxes approach uh, goes? And how surprised were you that the Republicans and that right wing thinkers would start to move away from it? Yeah, so I think I think at least to to the 1960s, one of the sort of anecdotes that I've pointed out is Ronald Reagan gave probably the speech that launched his career. It's called a, a Time for Choosing. In 1964, it was in favor of Barry Goldwater's candidacy. In that speech, he talked about you know libertarian economics. He talked about balancing the budget. He talked about being strong on defense. Um, he talked about you know particular examples of of wasteful government spending and how objectives could be achieved more efficiently, more effectively, even with just putting market type thinking in the government, like inside of how government operates. And the thing about it is the the gist of that speech, you could see match conservative economics probably from 1964. Well, through you know, at least the Bush administration, probably the McCain campaigns and even the Romney campaigns had that same general philosophy about the world. They were broadly speaking libertarian. They broadly speaking thought that you know the market was superior to government, and even when you were dealing with the government, you should think in market type principles, strict cost benefit analysis, this type of thing, and that like government left to its own devices was prone to like waste, fraud, and abuse, and so. That sort of core economic philosophy lasted, I guess, yes, from 1964, I would say, at least up until through the Bush administration, I would think, through 2012. So that's like, you know, 50 years or so of, of dominance almost. And then it, it was swept aside seemingly in the 2000, the run up to the 2016 campaign. So with Trump, especially, you know, so in 2015, sloughing off commitments to do anything about entitlements, to rein in any sort of spending with his incredibly hard-hitting attack on free trade, you know, that uh, that trade was bringing down the economy, Trump. Uh, I think more than anything else was his initial break with sort of, uh, sort of neoliberal doctrine. And then, of course, he picked up and then hammered home uh, really hard the idea of restricting immigration. And that, I guess, wasn't as central of a plank 
to neoliberalism and maybe even by Romney. Romney was 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 a little immigration skeptic, but Reagan certainly was pro-immigration. Reagan had, you know, amnesty uh, during when he was in office. And the, the really sort of like traditionalist conservative view was the free movement of like goods and people in order to like clear markets. And that, of course, was just very not Trump, right? Not the free movement of goods and definitely not the free movement of people. And a skepticism about whether markets could come to the right decision on their own or whether or not they needed to be like, in some sense, even directed or told what to do by the president of the United States. Were you surprised by this shift? Were you were you taken aback by it? The fact that it worked, at least in terms of getting the Republicans into power? I, I was surprised by how powerful it was. So what I thought was that after the Great Recession and how slow the recovery had been, there was generally a loss of faith in free market economics. And we saw that on both sides of the aisle, or at least I thought I saw it on both sides of the aisle. And so I knew that people were getting more and more pushback in the Republican Party for a view that could be described as like just completely pro-market or having, you know, a magical faith in markets. So so that was clear. Some sort of like change was going to come. I, I think it was shocking just how like overpowering the Trump message was and then how seemingly, you know, was bought into by like, you know, conservatives, certainly the rank and file conservatives, like once he became the nominee. So even, you know, when we looked at like how Republicans think about free trade. It had been slipping in years, but after Trump became the nominee, you know, it, it seemed like there was like a, a market step down, at least for a little bit. I think it actually recovered a little bit. But there there were movements in how people thought going into alignment with Trump's sort of like more skeptical view of of markets. And I, I was shocked at how powerful it was that he was able to do that. Yeah. And we're going to go issue by issue uh, through some of these changes in a second. But first, I want to note something else that you've pointed out to me in the past, which is that even within this populist part of the right, even within the Trumpian populist part, the word socialist and the word communist get used all the time to describe Democrats. I mean, this was a central part of the 2020 campaign was the populist right saying that Joe Biden was a socialist or Joe Biden was a communist. I want to be absolutely clear, he's not either of those things. But the fact that they're using that as a slander suggests that even the populist part of the right recognizes that it needs to have at least some alliance with market-based principles, right? That's the implication. Now, maybe they weren't really thinking that, <laughs> that much into it. They were just trying to find a label that would stick. I don't know. But... It's interesting that there's both a pulling away from market-oriented economics and also that they're using the word socialist as a slander, right? You'd think they would go some other route. But what do you make of all that? Yeah, so I think, at least initially, I think some people have tried to assemble a sort of unified populist uh, view. I don't know if we'll, we'll get to that. But at least initially, populism was sort of a philosophy of rejection. And so you were starting with people on the right who, you know, for traditional reasons had rejected communism. Certainly, you know, that was associated with the Soviet Union and even sort of like a socialist notion of really overbearing government programs, government that would like control everything. But they also then began to reject sort of like international capitalism and corporations. And I think in the middle, there might have been a sentimental view that like there was a heroic American small businessman who really should be, you know, running the show. 
But that wasn't really made explicit, I think, because there was a deep confusion about who they could trust, right? I mean, they didn't think that they could trust big government, but then suddenly after the financial crisis and the seeming coming apart, you know, the economy and, you know, in the Great Recession, they didn't feel like they could trust the business either. And so there was like a deep distrust of both of these sources of power. And that, I think, is what what I would identify as a populist thing, people who distrusted big overarching government programs and people who distrusted international business. And I think in that is probably why Trump as a, a singular figure could have so much power because he he was speaking this language and perhaps was somebody like they could trust. Right. So if you're looking for like, well, who can you trust? Then, you know, Trump was presenting himself as the answer. You can trust me. And so I think initially that was sort of the sense of populist economics. And it didn't really have a, a firm, like theoretical backing because it was more response to, you know, these adverse events that had happened in the world. Yeah, that's really interesting. And your response is also perfectly consistent with one of the central definitions of populism, which is the us versus them in versus out dimension to it, that it is a rhetoric. It is a philosophy of exclusivity. You know, it's there is the people and then there's the people who disagree with us and they're not they don't count as the people. Right. Uh, you're with us or you're against us. That kind of thing. It is quite consistent with that, where you basically say, like, anything that we can stick to the other side, we're going to use, even if it's not really consistent with the other things that we claim that we are in favor of. Right. Right. OK, great. Let's go through some economic issues and we'll talk about the ways in which conservative economics has shifted. Here's maybe the the easiest place to start, which is with the deficit. You don't really hear that much about deficit reduction anymore, um, at least not relative to what you used to hear from conservatives. Now, I don't know if it's because we're still too close to what happened during the Trump years where, you know, the tax policies of Trump led to a much larger deficit. And so maybe it's just too soon for conservatives to say, no, no, we actually really do care about the deficits because Republicans were in charge of all three, both houses of Congress and the White House when they passed their big tax bill at the end of 2017. It did lead to a larger deficit. And I mean, you can make arguments, you know, saying that like, a certain bill is good anyways, you know, even though it raises the deficit. I have myself argued over the course of the last 10 years that bigger deficits are in general a good idea when you need to stimulate the economy to get more people back to work. That's totally fine. That's totally consistent. But what do you think is going on in terms of Republican rhetoric, in terms of the fact that, for example, 18 Republican senators and 13 Republicans in the House recently voted for Joe Biden's infrastructure bill, which is going to cost about you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, if not more than a trillion dollars. I don't know. Republicans just don't seem to make as much noise about this. So what do you make of that? Yeah, so I think that it's like uh, the, the confluence of a number of different things on this one. Even from like the Reagan years, there was tension between people who were like more focused on supply side tax cuts. I would say in Congress, people like Jack Kemp. And people who were like more concerned about the deficit, people like David Stockman was famous about that. And there, there was like sort of a, a real a, a tension between these two groups in the Republican Party. And, you know, it tried to like settle that by, you know, either we'll have tax cuts that are so good that they won't influence the deficit or we'll cut spending enough so that we'll lower the deficit, 
even if we cut taxes as well. Sometimes people forget, you know, Cheney, Dick Cheney, vice president under under George W. Bush, uh, once famously said, you know, Reagan proved deficits don't matter. And so uh, Cheney was like kind of part of this like super supply side kind of folks who were just like, what really what matters is like cutting taxes. That's that's the most important thing. Um, so that sliver of the Republican Party had as existed ever since Reagan, but it usually got put on the back burner, especially uh, when Republicans were were out of office. It was more the like really moderate pro-business guys who had that view and and they would actually, you know, tend not to be elected when when, uh, when the Democrats would sweep. So it was that. Then the second thing is there were people like me who came up around the time of the Great Recession who were saying like, no, things are fundamentally different now than they've been. Before you were living in an economy where there was more or less at what economists call full employment or only rarely dipped above full employment. And the condition there is that you have this fundamental trade-off if you spend more on government spending, that's going to be less for the private sector because you only have a limited number of workers and machines and stuff like that. After the Great Recession, we had this huge period of like massive unemployment and lots of people who were so discouraged they had left the labor market who formed this sort of like pool of available workers that never got soaked up. And so if you did more spending on one side and that led to hiring some of those workers, it didn't necessarily mean that it took anything away from the private sector. And so I think this is the same period that around which you were saying that higher deficits are better. And I more said, you know, deficits don't really have the same effect, you know, that they used to have in this period. Our predictions kept being correct. It kept being the case that the response from more deficits or more stimulus was lower unemployment and more people coming back into the labor force. And these sort of like fundamental constraints where interest rates would shoot up because lots of people were trying to borrow money all at once and there was only so much money to lend out. That didn't happen. And so the the fears that deficit hawks had had didn't happen. And so that sort of broke down some people. Yeah, I want to I want to hang on, Carl. I want to actually explain that for a second, you know, because the fear of the past was that if the government borrowed too much money by selling treasuries, essentially, that eventually the people who bought those treasuries would start to get nervous that the government might not be able to pay it back. And so there'd end up being less demand for treasuries. And the consequence would then be that the government would have to keep offering higher interest rates in order to get people to buy those treasuries. And that as interest rates would shoot up, that would be bad both because it led to a you know, loss of confidence in the government, it signaled a loss of confidence in the government, but also because higher interest rates tend to depress economic growth. And what you're saying here is that those fears of the past were not realized in the last decade or so when the government did borrow more money to spend on the economy, that actually interest rates stayed low because there was this huge pool of people who were willing to lend money to the government and that therefore those fears of the past no longer really apply. And you've written quite a bit about this, including a piece you wrote in National Review, a conservative publication, it should be noted, saying that things are different now from the way they were, say, in the 1980s or 1990s, that now there's just a lot more interest in the U.S. dollar and in things like treasuries that are denominated in U.S. dollars that you can only buy with U.S. dollars. And so therefore, the government has more capacity to borrow money to spend on the economy 
when it is appropriate. Is that about what you're saying here? I think that's right. I think that's right. Just to give you a sense of, of why I was saying that, it's, is after the Great Recession. Yeah, the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. Even though it started in America, ironically, people went and looked for more U.S. dollar-denominated assets because the dollar is sort of the currency that even other central banks, even other governments use as their universal currency. Because it's um, thought to be safe. It's thought to be safe and it's thought to be uh, what we would call deep and liquid. Like there are lots of dollars in the world. Everybody trades with the United States. Everybody does business with Wall Street. Anyone can use dollars, right? So anybody might not necessarily use uh, rubles or so or whatever, you know, other currency that you had. Everybody uses dollars. Everybody does business with Wall Street. And so they wanted to move to dollar denominated assets, which were seen as safe because they were liquid. Lots of people had them. And that sort of increased the demand for treasuries, even though the crisis started in the United States. And that phenomenon seemed to like just grow after the Great Recession. There was more and more demand for dollar-denominated assets. And so there was really no no chance in that framework for there to be this shooting up of interest rates. And to make that situation or to exacerbate that situation, at the very same time, the private sector in the United States was really slow to come about. And so you didn't have lots of entrepreneurs or businesses wanting to go out and borrow a bunch of money. What you might think under normal circumstances is here the rest of the world is willing to loan Americans money really cheap. Won't American entrepreneurs just borrow that like crazy, build a bunch of factories, build a bunch of warehouses? But no, you saw that that effect was muted after the Great Recession, that private businesses were not taking advantage of these low interest rates to massively expand, you know, the size of their business or the, you know, their, the footprint. They just weren't doing that. And so those two forces together assured that interest rates would stay low. Lots of people wanted to loan money in dollars, but there wasn't a sort of insatiable private demand for borrowing dollars. And therefore the government could come in there and sort of soak up some of the, the, the savings that people were doing in dollars uh, without affecting interest rates. Right. So we we basically, throughout the 2010s, we saw that there was no big freak out at the government borrowing all this money. And when the Republicans were in power, in other words, in the first couple of years of the Trump administration, when the Republicans held the House and the Senate and, of course, the White House, they recognized that they could still borrow a lot of money because they passed a tax plan that did involve raising deficits and they were okay with it. So I just wanted to note that that actually does seem to be something of a shift in the conservative approach to economics, at least in conservative thinking. And I do want to just really quickly make one point here, which is that there is, of course, the rhetoric behind the conservative approach, and there's the reality. Ronald Reagan also ran some quite big deficits throughout parts of his presidency. George W. Bush ran huge deficits, partly the combination of tax cuts and of course, the spending on the wars overseas. But in the last few years, it just seems, and again, I'm not being precise here, like there's just less worry on the conservative side about deficits overall. I just wanted to mark that. Do, do you have any other thoughts on on what might be going on there? Yeah, so I think there was two forces coming through. And then the last thing I think was Trump himself. And so Trump himself was not concerned about the deficit at all. 
was not interested in doing the types of things that you would have to do to make a big difference about the sort of like long term structural deficits, like, you know, changing entitlements. Um, he had said that, you know, changing Social Security was off the table, changing Medicare was off the table. And so that sort of like changed the game, I think, a little bit for a lot of politicians. The economists, you know, weren't saying that there was a big deal here. People who had voted for Trump weren't saying there was a big deal here. And, you know, the the sort of old energy behind deficits had just sort of vanished. Originally, I would say when the Republicans had envisioned their tax cut, they did have a way of paying for it. Destination-based cash flow tax. Uh, Trump <laughs> scuttled that, and you know said it's too complicated. I'm not doing that. Figure something out, and that so that left them with like no way to pay for it. And so they either had to give up on their signature initiative or embrace deficits. And so given the people weren't in favor of it anymore, the economists weren't in favor of it anymore. Uh, I think they, they just the sort of like deficit thing just sort of sort of crumbled. You know, the anti-deficit faction of the Republican Party just sort of like crumbled in the face of that. So I think I think you're right. Trump and especially the tax cut were like the, the nail in the coffin for, for most of those guys. Still a few on Twitter, you know, trying to make noise. <laughs> I want to focus on the thing you said, though, about how Trump was not at all interested in cutting entitlements like Social Security or Medicare. At least rhetorically, that is a line he ran on. And in fact, I think he was probably afraid that like he would have a lot of voters that would say, wait a minute, like I actually quite like this part of what the government does. And what's interesting about the sort of end of the anti-deficit coalition is that it makes it so that spending money, the government spending money and also cutting taxes are no longer competing ideas because you can actually do both. If you believe that deficits are fine, then you can do both. And I'm not really interested in, in like debating like whether or not this is a good thing for the long term or not. I just wanted to note that like this is quite a significant shift because it leads to a kind of politics of abundance. Again, I'm not saying that as a value judgment, whether you think it's good or bad. It leads to a politics of abundance where Republicans are essentially saying like, we can do the things we want to do. We can keep spending money and we can cut taxes. And, you know, maybe on the, we're not here to talk about the Democrats or the left, but the left would sort of see that. And I think they agree that deficits aren't as big a deal as what people used to believe. And they say, well, we can fund the kind of programs that we want without having to make too many competing trade-offs. And so I just think it's a fascinating way in which this shift within conservative economics also signals uh, a kind of move by the parties in each other's direction, if that makes sense, right? Right. I think that's right. And I mean, and I think that that reflects the the actual reality that we experienced, at least up until the pandemic, which was that this sort of traditional forced trade-off between cutting taxes and increasing spending didn't exist because on the one hand, there were lots of people willing to lend money to the government that would keep interest rates low, even if the government borrowed. And on the other hand, there were lots of unemployed and discouraged workers who could come in and build the stuff that the government you know, wanted to buy and build stuff that the private sector wanted to buy. So in neither the financial economy nor sort of what economists think of as a real economy, was there this forced trade-off? And the party sort of slowly realized that, I think, and the Republicans became less anti-spending than they had been. And Trump was really, I guess, you know, the guy who, who hit them over the head and was like, no, you can't talk about cutting these major entitlements anymore. Those are our voters. And so far, that is more or less stuck. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens in the next decade or so, but I think that's stuck. 
All right. I want to turn away from the deficit now and talk about trade, because this is certainly the area where the Trump administration cut the most severely against traditional conservative economics, which, you know, is incredibly pro-free trade. And by the way, that's that's just economics, period. You know, this is interesting to me because he didn't just run on this. Donald Trump didn't just run on this using the rhetoric of anti-trade. When he got into office, he also put in place a very substantive agenda that was anti-trade, that lifted tariffs and other trade barriers, not just against political adversaries like China, but against political allies like the Europeans and Canada. And I'm not sure if the anti-trade message is sort of filtering through to other parts of conservative economics, however we define that. But what do you make of that really quite severe turn against what I think 99% of conservative economists would have advised before the Trump years? So I think that was probably the biggest uh, populist shift that happened was, you know, over the issue of free trade. Deindustrialization in the United States had been a source of, of pain for people for, for decades and lots of like lots the loss of, people, of manufacturing jobs, the lots of manufacturing right? jobs okay. in particular, the loss of manufacturing jobs have been a source of pain in the United States for decades. Lots of people have blamed that on trade. Academic economists resisted trade as as being at fault there. So mostly this is to do to automation um, and other sort of like long term technological trends that are happening. But it was very common for like the average American or the average pundit to sort of blame trade for that. But Republicans especially had sort of like ignored that at best. You know, they just sort of like been silent when, you know, people were upset about trade. The more hardcore conservatives were adamantly pro-free trade. And certainly when Republicans were in office, they voted for free trade agreements. Uh, And Trump, from the beginning, took aim at that, took aim at China in particular and said that, no, it's China that's responsible for the loss of our manufacturing jobs. It's these horrible deals that politicians have signed on both sides of the aisle. Uh, that have caused this. And I think that more than anything else, or at least appear to people in the conservative movement, more than anything else, what allowed him to take down like all of these sort of more experienced uh, Republican politicians is that he was explicitly blaming them for having agreed to or signed or promoted trade deals, which led to the loss of like thousands of manufacturing jobs. And so I think the entire Republican Party was stunned at like how successful uh, that message was uh, with the voters during the primary. Um, and he carried that into office. And I think there was some symbolic or like uh, disagreement with you know, with Trump on that. Chuck Grassley, a powerful senator from Iowa, uh, kind of pushed back a little bit on Trump. But for the most part, the Republicans sort of folded a little bit to that because Trump's message had resonated so strongly with the voters. And there was just a sense that like some like a ground swell revolution was happening. And so, yeah, I think you're right. That's probably the the most identifiably populist thing. And if you were to think of like from Tucker Carlson or Glenn Beck or any of those, you know, populist figures out there that identifying China and trade as an enemy is like a classic part of, of their message. And more than anybody else, sort of like Trump grew that from whatever sort of like small embers it were into this new face of conservatism. I got to say, this seems like another area 
where there is, again, some alignment between this populist approach to trade from the right and what I think had always had a more natural home on the left, which is a certain skepticism of just like a full-blown free trade agenda. Okay, And this gets a little complicated because in the past, of course, there have been Democrats who also have favored a pro-trade agenda. Let's not forget NAFTA was signed during the Clinton years. Uh, Obama himself was pursuing a trans-Pacific trade agreement. It didn't pass because he he left office before it could be passed, but um, he pursued it. And I want to just make the point there that this is another area, though, where now on the right, you have some trade skeptics. On the left, you've always had some trade skeptics. And there is just another moving together um, between parts of the two parties, at least the populist parts of the two parties. But the other point I want to make here is that I wonder to what extent this is also a recognition that there have been some real costs to the sort of decades of globalization that we've had, which doesn't mean, by the way, and I certainly don't think, that globalization overall is a bad thing. I think it brings wonderful benefits. In the end, it's worth it. But I think people who argue in favor of globalization sometimes are a little bit reluctant to acknowledge that it also can have severe costs and that it hasn't worked out very well, especially for non-college folks throughout the country. And rather than confronting that squarely and seeing what we should do about it, there's a certain sense in which I think a lot of globalization's defenders have essentially said, no, I don't want to give any ground on this because if I do, people will start saying that we should just undo all the gains from globalization. And it seems like that approach of turning away doesn't really work. And so I wonder if the reason that there is now within the right a part of the conservative economic I don't know if movement is the right word, a part of conservative economics that now has a trade skeptical faction. I wonder if that is a final acknowledgement that actually globalization has had some costs and that if you want a pro-globalization agenda, you've got to confront those costs instead of turning away from them. What do you think? No, I, I think that's almost, I think that's exactly right. So a, a couple of things I'll say that. So first, you have seen in the Trump years, I don't think any of these people would want to give credit to Trump. But from Paul Krugman to some professors at MIT who've done a lot of work on this, we've seen a lot of people who were very big trade advocates say, look, we underestimated the impact of China on American manufacturing. And all of the things you know that we were saying about trade are true probably over the long term. But there's a recognition that there's something that's been identified as China shock that China accelerated this process of changing the American workforce from one primarily focused on manufacturing goods to providing high-tech services. It accelerated that process really rapidly and probably faster than millions of people in the heartland could adjust themselves. So if the same process where we went from manufacturing to high tech had happened over a few longer decades, people would have gotten new degrees. They would have you know, been able to adjust. Some of the older people would have had a chance to retire. But the fact that it happened really rapidly, like from 2000 to 2010, you see this massive shift from a quasi-industrial economy to like an iPhone economy in this short period that had a shock on you know lots of 
working people, especially in the heartland. So you've had economists sort of recognize this. At the same time, I think you're exactly right that like, you know, the more sophisticated people around trade have always said trade has winners and losers, but the winners outweigh the losers. Conservative politicians and pundits weren't really willing to acknowledge, you know, the losers because of the fear that that would only open the door for anti-trade sentiment, that you had to only focus on their aggregate wins here. The whole country gets better. Growth is a thing. That's what we're focused on and not talk at all about how the wins and losses might be played out. And when you think about like what populism is and in like this sort of like philosophy of rejection, that's precisely where it comes in because people are saying our own politicians, our own pundits, our own intellectual leaders have been basically like gaslighting us on this. <laughs> like they've been trying to tell us that like this is all good. This is just 100% good. But we're looking around our communities and it doesn't look 100% good. And so that's sort of like that hard sort of rejection that you see. It's not accepting the sort of like old leftist critique of trade. It's not that. It's just rejecting your own experts as untrustworthy. And so you get this sort of populist thing that like, yes, the left is still bad, you know, in all these ways, but also our our own experts are bad, too. And so like there's few people you can trust. Donald Trump was one of them who was saying, no, you're right. China did screw you. The people who allowed that to happen were stabbing you in the back and I'm here to change it all. And so that was probably the purest, I think, populist moment. And it, and it was generated, to be fair, by the fact that like a lot of conservative economists, myself included, just didn't really want to talk about how there might be winners and losers because we're afraid that, that even opening up that conversation would undermine the sort of aggregate gains that come from trade. And so you're seeing a backlash, I think, from that unwillingness to acknowledge the difficulties that people were going through. Yeah. And and to stay with internationalist topics for a second, uh, I want to ask a question about immigration, which you've already mentioned. But my question has to do with the kind of rise to prominence of the Tea Party movement, which uh, occurred during the years of Barack Obama's presidency. And I'm intrigued by this because the Tea Party's rhetoric was about how the government should get off our backs. It was a very kind of like pro-freedom rhetoric that it used. But in terms of the policies that people who supported the Tea Party tended to support, and according to some political science research done, you know, in the years after its rise to prominence, it was shown that actually what the Tea Party had was a very strong kind of nativist sentiment, a kind of backlash to ideas around liberalizing immigration. And so I'm just kind of curious to get your thoughts on what you think of the Tea Party's influence on what would happen later in the Trump years and sort of the entrenchment of the Tea Party and Tea Party ideas in terms of conservative economics and how it's influenced the approach to conservative economics. Right. So I I think you definitely see with the rise of the Tea Party a a union between anti-government ideas and a strong sort of like nativist sentiment. And the way some of that got unified was the idea that government is backing 
big international corporations against us. The bailout was seen as an example of that. So when the financial crisis happened, there was the TARP bailout, which provided a lot of at least temporary funding for financial institutions who were heavily invested in some of the types of assets, mortgage-backed assets that were falling in value. That was seen as a sort of like unfair intervention by the government. So that's where you get the anti-big government thing with these big international corporations like on Wall Street for the purpose of screwing the average American. And while I don't think there was a clear connection into how the average American got screwed, it was clear that the average American got screwed in the wake of all of this. And so that put it together. And, you know, along with that sentiment was these big corporations, these same sort of like Wall Street type neoliberal people are the ones who are for open immigration. The reason that they want to do that is because they want to bring in all of these cheaper workers from around the world and again, undermine the American small businessman or middle class person. I think that unified as a philosophy of the world after the financial crisis its name was sort of the Tea Party, right? And its number one signature issue was the bailouts. But like this was a part of this general philosophy that there is this corrupt intermingling of big business and big government for the purpose of screwing over normal Americans. And so there was definitely a huge nativist sentiment going along with that. Another, you know, an area where I think it also teed in with a similar popular sentiment of the anti-trade is that conservative economists generally were were pro-immigration and, you know, downplayed what what someone might have thought of as the assimilation difficulties that, that people might have had. So there were just Americans who felt that, you know, people coming in from different countries who spoke a different language, who had different customs, that this was a cost to them of having to, like, assimilate or, or wait for those people to, like, sort of assimilate to, like, American culture. But it was a cost that traditional conservative economists just did not count at all, just, like, washed aside and said, no, you know, these are people who are who are doing jobs Americans won't do. And that's the line that George W. Bush used. And, like, there was a big pushback against that. And that pushback actually, I think, even started a little bit before the crisis because George W. Bush himself wanted to do a big immigration deal. And it was sort of these same forces that were we're saying, no, the traditional conservative leaders are gaslighting us on immigration or they're like not paying any attention to like these difficulties we're having in our communities. They just think that like more workers are better. And they sort of like scuttled a lot of what a lot of what Bush wanted to do. That was definitely unified, like into the Tea Party message after Barack Obama came into office. And I think, yeah, totally picked up by by Trump. I mean, it's become like one of Trump's signature issues. Uh, but I I think the, the influence definitely probably went more from Tea Party to Trump than Trump to like Tea Party. And it's the fact that he imbibed that sentiment that was on, you know, conservative radio that you heard, you know, through all these Tea Party people. And that's become like another sort of plank of populism. So if I had to look at it, I'd say that like the anti-trade stuff was sparked probably by Trump himself. But the anti-immigration stuff had the earliest roots under Bush taking off under Obama. And then Trump sort of just bought into it in part because, you know, he's a consumer of that conservative talk radio world. Yeah, I think part of the similarity between what Trump did on trade and what Trump did on immigration is simply that 
he actually took substantive steps to limit the flows of both trade and immigration. It wasn't just something that he said. He actually put in place policies in office, partly because the way the laws are designed, the executive branch has a lot of unilateral authority over both of those things. And so what ended up happening was that you had actual trade barriers go up during the Trump administration, and you had actual policies being taken that really did limit the flows of migration into the U.S. as well. It actually was a thing that happened. It wasn't just it wasn't just part of a, a campaign strategy. So anyways, I thought it was important to talk about that. Uh, I want to move on now to the sort of approach to regulation to the corporate world, the business world during the Trump years and what the sort of new thinking might be in terms of conservative economics on that. I want to start by noting that there actually was quite a bit of deregulation during the Trump years, you know, Michael Lewis wrote a whole book about how there was the dismantling of some things that the federal government had done, had been doing for decades. And on the other hand, Donald Trump was very comfortable, for example, browbeating companies, using his microphone to, uh, to try to sort of direct companies to do things. Not very effectively, but even so, I think if you had asked conservative economists in the past if that's a good idea, they would have said absolutely not, that the government shouldn't be playing favorites, that the government shouldn't be privileging one sector of the economy over other sectors. And more recently, you know, you've even had some conservatives becoming more comfortable with antitrust policy, which they used to be very much against. But now there are some businesses that because conservatives perceive them at least as harming their own cause, they're just more comfortable using the tools of government to curtail that business activity. I'm thinking mainly of like social media companies, but there might be some other ones too. So what do you make about the tension there between the deregulation of quite a bit of the economy that did happen under the Trump years versus the comfort trying to direct business activity towards, for example, the manufacturing sector through trade policy, through using the very loud microphone that the president has, and now this sort of newfound comfort with some parts of antitrust policy. What do you think? Yeah, so so I think in, in some ways that's the most interesting part because I think that really evolved during the Trump presidency. So Trump himself is no uh, shrinking violet or whatever. Uh, he's willing to tell people what he thinks. And so he would, would browbeat companies he thought were doing bad things or he thought were anti-worker or not living up to what he wanted. And I think when he first came into office, you know, that looked like just like little pieces of red meat he was throwing out to the base. Probably nothing would come of it. You know, he made a big deal about Foxconn having this plant that was going to be brought to the United States. It seems like nothing came of it. And so a lot of conservatives thought that this is what this is. This is just Trump being outspoken and Trumpy. But like over the years, his sort of animosity over Twitter with various companies, people who would upset him, um, CNN in particular, the media, eventually culminating in a huge fight with Twitter and Facebook themselves over allowing Trump to use their platform, created this anti, especially social media, you know, the conservative movement had already been sort of like anti-media, anti-mainstream media, but the willingness to sort of try to use the government to like influence or affect these things I think evolved during the Trump administration because Trump himself, when he first came in, his idea is we should strip out all of these sort of regulations. Uh, he was a developer. Developers hate regulations. And so, like, he, you know, like he had that mentality. But his personal animosity 
with various companies, leading financiers or the social media conglomerates themselves, that started this like new sort of like populist anti Silicon Valley anti-media thing. And I think people like Josh Hawley picked that up and the lever that they saw that they could use to attack social media was antitrust policy. And so you see conservatives pushing that. And I think this has taken, I would say, the general conservative economics movement like by shockers, like, like created a shock that people don't quite know how to respond to because the modern view on antitrust, which is basically very light touch, don't do anything unless there is a clear harm to the consumers, usually explicitly in the terms of higher prices. This view is deeply associated with the conservative law and economics movement that evolved in the 80s. And so there's a huge part of the conservative movement that did not respond to this. But because it's happening through Trump's Twitter wars, it seems to have such an enormous power, right? Few people are willing to stand up against it. And there are certain people, whether you think it's opportunistic or their genuine views like Josh Hawley, who are really willing to ride that train and say, no, we need to like to stop the out of control. I think the term that's now uses woke capital companies from doing what they're doing. Um, we see like even now J.D. Vance, you know, running running for Senate from Ohio is pushing the same sort of similar message hard. And like, is that now the conservative position? It's certainly the loudest position, you know, right now. <laughs> uh, I don't... It's the one know, that's getting a lot of attention. It's the yeah. one that's getting a lot of attention, yeah. But it's also, I think, that most, you know, conservative economists, conservative advisors, even politicians and their staff are, are just going to say to shock about what to do about this seemingly grassroots movement. And and again, you see that there's still a sense by everyone that like the Trump phenomena hit the establishment Republicans hard and like nearly completely bowl them over. And so if this is another long lasting Trumpist phenomenon, most people don't want to get in front of that train. And so that's why I think you have like the shock on the one hand with the more sort of like opportunists like Holly on the other hand, and a deep confusion in conservative circles about like what what the answer is going to be i mean i know like most people i would talk to just kind of hope <laughs> that, that like elizabeth warren or somebody on like the, the, the democratic side will make enough of a deal about this that it like becomes identified as like uh, a democratic issue that democrats are the ones who want to do antitrust because otherwise it's just it's completely unclear it's so at odds with Robert Bork, the conservative legal movement, the philosophies that, you know, were created in the 1980s that like, yeah, I think there's just, there's just uh, people are stunned yeah. <laughs> as to All what right. to do. Yeah, Carl, I want to close with an idea of yours that you've pushed, I think, partly in jest, but certainly with a few grains of truth to it as well. And is with this idea that on a number of issues, the administration of Joe Biden is like the second term of Donald Trump. So uh, this is going to get us both into a lot of trouble, but I, I think it, it makes for uh, an interesting topic. So here, for example, are a few of those issues. Um, one is the first bill from Joe Biden earlier this year, which was meant to fight the pandemic, was largely an extension of the two bills that Donald Trump passed to fight the pandemic. It included a big expansion of things like unemployment insurance and some other measures that were meant to sort of help get the economy through this terrible pandemic. 
Another is obviously the bipartisan infrastructure bill. That is something that Trump had promised, but that Joe Biden actually delivered. Another was, of course, exiting Afghanistan. Again, Trump promised it. Joe Biden actually delivered it. There's the continuation of economic belligerence towards China, which uh, obviously Donald Trump uh, very famously started the trade wars with China. But Joe Biden seems himself pretty intent on continuing it, using different rhetoric. But it's still something that Joe Biden is comfortable doing. He still seems to see China certainly not as an economic collaborator, but more as a competitor and in some things, uh, I think, as an adversary. Biden has only unwound some of Donald Trump's trade barriers, and he's making some progress on that, I should note. He recently reached a deal, for example, with the European Union on lowering steel tariffs and whatnot. But on some things, uh, you know, he, he also, his administration is taking a very cautious, skeptical approach, for example, towards the World Trade Organization and whether it's going to allow new members to the arbitration panel that we spoke about on this show just a few weeks ago. And plus, of course, there's the Buy America provisions in some of Joe Biden's bills. And so I I just I'm curious to know what you make of all this. Like, what should be our thinking on this idea that Joe Biden is extending some of the things that Donald Trump, you know, either started or that he promised but didn't deliver on? And Joe Biden is delivering on that because it seems of a piece with all these different economic topics we just discussed where the conservative economic approach has shifted enough that there is a certain amount of convergence between left and right. Right. I think that's I think that's exactly right. And so it sounds, you know, in in our particular moment right now with hyperpartisanship, it sounds, you know, to many people probably even offensive or crazy to say that that uh, <laughs> Joe Biden is like the realization of some of uh, Trump's agenda. But if I were to step back and give you sort of like the theory of this, what's happening is like the American people were shifting in a lot of ways. And you can see that really big on war. Right. So just the amount of support in the country for any sort of like foreign intervention collapsed, you know, over the last sort of decade. You can see that with skepticism about trade. I think you can see that. I mean, even though it's, I think, hard for a lot of elite Democrats to admit, you can see that some with with immigration uh, across like much of the working class, even across party boundaries, there's there's more skepticism about immigration. But you, you see the country sort of moving in this direction. Trump is the first person to say it in some sense, because he, the country is moving against conservative orthodoxy, the Republican Party sort of like falls apart <laughs> as this change is happening. They don't know what to do. They don't know how to handle it. And they're sort of vulnerable to somebody like Trump coming along and saying, we're going to do everything different now. But then what I saw like a lot of Joe Biden is coming and saying, okay, now actually these, many of these are more consistent with like traditional like democratic views of using government affirmatively to protect workers and, you know, to uh, advance, you know, the middle class interests. And so Joe Biden then could like affirmatively adopt, you know, you know, policies that are going to use buy America provisions. That's not at all a strange thing in the history of like democratic politics to say that like the government is going to encourage people to buy more American stuff. And so, you know, across the board, you can see it makes sense that if there's a shift that's kind of generally speaking, it's not perfect, but generally speaking away from the Reagan-esque, you know, conservative thinking that like it can manifest itself first in the Republican Party because that's where it creates a crisis. But then it's going to be mainly Democrats who come up with like the new way forward, the new way to like implement this sort of like leftward shift that the country seems to sort of be going through. 
Yeah, and that leads me to my final question, which is the one that's kind of been underlying this entire conversation, which is what is conservative economics now? Because the truth is that when I try to answer that question, all I can come up with is that conservative economics is not what it used to be, but I don't actually know what it is now or what it's gonna be. So do you have any kind of overarching like philosophical thoughts on what, how to answer that question now as somebody who's participated quite a bit in the debate over, you know, this trend and this shift and, and how it's kind of shaking out and as somebody who chronicles these kinds of trends? I, I do think that we're in a period of flux and it's hard to say. So like some of it will be will depend on like how the American economy and the things that are important to Americans evolve. If we get back to a permanent full employment situation, which which I'd say is is, is at least temporarily kind of where we are right now, it's very hard to see what's happening with COVID. Uh, but the American economy is acting more like it's at full employment than it has in the past decade. If that happens, if we've seen inflation pressures rise, if with that interest rates slowly rise, uh, you might see a little bit of a return to some of the older conservative principles, sort of like reassembled and shifted kind of, I guess, a little bit to the left. I mean, that would be sort of like the most, I guess, uh, simplest preservationist thing to happen. Um, but the other thing that I think might happen, and it's just, it's another model, is what in England, I think, you know, came to be called like one nation conservatism, which is a sort of like big government conservatism that is defined by patriotism and like pro-Americanism and like, you know, rabbit pro-Americanism. And that's a conservative philosophy that can exist for a while. And it did in the United Kingdom, sort of in the excesses and in, in response to the excesses of the Gilded Age. You know, you had that sort of like pushback in the UK. And so I could kind of see it going in either of those two directions. That's sort of like my my big picture. It could go towards this one nation uh, conservatism, which is definitely where Trump wants to go or that's where the descendants of Trump want to go. Um, if there's enough of the old sort of trade-offs coming back, then you could reassemble sort of like a traditional conservatism light. But I mean, I think that's really honestly going to depend on the direction the economy takes and what the most salient issues for voters going forwards are. Carl Smith, thanks so much for being on The New Bazaar, man. This was fun. Thank you. And that's all for today's show. We are going to post links to Carl's pieces at Bloomberg in the show notes for this episode. The New Bazaar is a production of Bazaar Audio from me and executive producer Amy Keene. Adrian Lilly is our sound engineer. And our very chill theme music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you like today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. It's how people find out about us. And if you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia, or you can email us at hello at bazaaraudio.com. That's hello at B-A-Z-A-A-R-A-U-D-I-O.com. And we'll see you next week.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 